0: Hey, everybody. So this is Katie. We've got something a little different for you this week. Instead of me and Ben talking about some algorithms or whatever, I'm talking to one of my old friends from the physics world, Alex Rodovich, who has worked a lot in machine learning and its intersection with particle physics, which is really cool. And so I asked him to come on and chat with me and all of you about what that's like. So for the next 20 to 30 minutes, enjoy. Cool. Well, Alex, thanks for joining us. As a lot of our listeners might know, I used to work in particle physics, dabbled in machine learning during my time there, but it's been more than three years at this point now since I've really been in the field. So I'm really excited to hear from you what you've been working on. So let me start by asking you to just introduce yourself and give a quick intro to some of the stuff that you've been working on in physics
1: of course um first of all i should admit that i'm actually no longer a physicist as well some three four months ago now i left uh to become a machine learning researcher with borealis ai in toronto which i uh, will say has been great fun but uh before that i spent five years as a postdoc working for the college of william and mary working on neutrino oscillation research um what does that mean uh, well it's a sub uh, field of, new- of uh, particle physics in general which is all about studying uh, neutrinos, these very ghostly, weakly interacting particles that, um, whilst very difficult to study, offer the potential through their strange behavior to explain some really fundamental um, mysteries of the universe. Things like why our universe is uh, matter dominated rather than a seething mess of matter and antimatter.
0: Well, that seems important.
1: Uh, yeah, so it's certainly important, but the day to day of um, studying. Um, in any uh, particle physics experiment comes down to an awful lot of data analysis and an awful lot of machine learning at every step. And that's also true, uh, as you know very well, uh, Katie, at the uh, Collider Experiments at CERN, uh, where instead of searching for ghostly neutrinos, they're trying to study these very intense uh, energetic environments, but in excruciating detail, looking for uh, new physics at every step.
0: Yeah, no, I am fairly familiar with that, although like I said, I think it has come a long way even in the last few years since I was there. So I have my my own perspectives on this from the time that I had at CERN, but I would love to hear actually more about the neutrino physics part of it. So my recollection of neutrino experiments, and you should jump in here and correct me all the things I get wrong. <laughs> but as you mentioned, they're particles that don't interact very much with ordinary matter. And so if you want to have any reasonable chance of detecting them. You have to have a lot of matter present just because you have to, you know, roll a lot of dice to have the one come up head. Sorry, that's like not a good analogy. But anyway, point is there are these large underground detectors that have lots and lots of matter in them, but that neutrino events are like the more interesting ones are quite rare. Is that, did I, did I kind of get it right?
1: Yeah, uh, that's, um, getting to sort of the experimental side, at least. So uh, yeah, these ghostly particles, so you need to build these um, giant detectors. They're so rare, they need to be underground so you don't get uh, background radiation from the sky, from cosmic events. And uh, yeah, they're often kilotons of mass. So uh, the NOVA experiment I used to work on, principally, um, uh, was, its fire detector, at least for a long time, was the largest freestanding plastic structure in the world. And that's the sort of scale that we have to deal with, uh, tens of keletons are detected. Uh, that can offer some advantages compared to the collider experiments. So uh, some of your listeners might be aware of these iconic pictures of a particle physics detector where it sort of looks like an onion, or sort of a cyberpunk nightmare onion uh, with <laughs> anyway. its distinct uh, technology um, designed really beautifully to capture just the right bits of information as you go from a collision going outwards. Uh, so that's what happens in a collider experiment. But uh, in an neutrino experiment, that neutrino event can happen anywhere in your detector. You're not designing a collision to happen at a precise point. You're parking a giant detector in a very broad beam, uh, often, and uh, hoping a neutrino interaction will happen somewhere in that volume. That means the detectors tend to be much more uniform in their structure. Um, which means that uh, you end up with uh, fewer, let's say, uh, complications in the data, which means that you can often interpret it in sort of spatially correlated ways that after a bit of, if very painful, uh, calibration of the detector response end up uh, coming out almost looking like uh, images. And uh, some of your listeners can probably already begin to guess that uh, where I ended up spending a lot of my time was in using convolutional neural networks in that environment
0: yeah you you teed that up for me perfectly yeah so tell me a little bit about what some of the what are some of the biggest challenges that you have in in terms of doing that data analysis like when you're looking at those images what are what are the signatures in the images that present themselves yeah. well for yeah for like something like a computer vision type approach
1: absolutely so um again your listeners are probably familiar with sort of like the iconic examples of computer vision where maybe someone's trying to tell cats from dogs and <laughs> something like that. And you can imagine that uh, going back to the good old days of traditional computer vision, someone would have designed like the perfect kitten ear detection algorithm that was all about trying to find uh, angles and shapes which match uh, that kind of stuff. Um, for us, it's more unique patterns which correspond to electromagnetic showers of an electron um in the detector, or beautiful long tracks coming from uh, muons traveling through the detector. So very uh, sort of topological shape-based stuff, and also coming together to describe an entire uh, neutrino interaction um, by the combination of particles you see, but also sort of their relative positions and stuff like that.
0: So this this does remind me a little bit of the type of stuff that we used to do in the collider experiment. So the idea was you would have these tracks that you would reconstruct, and from those you could try to figure out what types of particles generated them, and then from that you would reverse engineer what type of physics could create those types of particles. And one of the big advantages to using machine learning in that context was sometimes it could pick up on correlations in the data that you couldn't get with more what, what we used to call cut-and-count-based t- analysis. So a cut-and-count was saying stuff like, okay, you need, to have a, you need to have evidence of an electron with this energy and a muon with that energy, and they have to be back-to-back as we've defined in this certain way. So it's kind of making a set of rules by hand and then finding the events that obeyed those rules and then seeing if there's a certain amount of them. Right. And so, and the thing that was nice about machine learning, yeah, was it could figure out that there were like subtleties in there that that cut and count would miss. so what does that look like on the for the neutrino physics yeah,
1: so um similarly in the collider and the neutrino world, uh you have this inherently multivariate data as you were just saying you've got it's very rich um and you can do cut and count analyses, and often that's preferred if you can do it and get an acceptable sort of signal out just because it's sort of seen as simpler. Um, and less likely to have uh, an uncertainty built into it that you don't capture well in your final analysis. Um, now, I think those wearing my uh, bias on my sleeves here. <laughs> I think that fear of bias uh, can sometimes be overhyped, but um, sort of similar thought patterns and um, yeah suggest so the same. We um, uh, cluster um, hits into tracks and particles, um, and using tools which actually were developed. Um, in sort of partnership with tools being developed in traditional computer vision. Uh, and again, that's very similar to the sort of tools which you used at CERN. Uh, and you can take that and do uh, manual feature extraction essentially, and then put that into um, uh, a BDT or a simple neural network or a KNN even in some cases. And that's actually where Nova was um, a few years ago. Um, but uh, sort of, I realized Um, whilst reading about convolutional neural networks, um, like a lot of your listeners, I suspect, uh, learning at my own time, um, realized that they could be a really great fit here because um, they're a powerful way to skip that feature engineering step. Um, When you have, like we had uh, with this detector data, spatially correlated information, where it's really a a perfect fit now, um, of course, you can always imagine doing these things with, Uh, big, massive, fully connected neural networks, but it's sort of very inefficient and hard to train, honestly. There are just too many weights involved. But when you can have this beautiful crystallization of the problem down to these kernel operations, and it makes sense because the important parts of the data, those clusters and tracks and opening angles between pairs of particles are are captured in spatial correlations. Um, A convolutional neural network works incredibly well, um, and it certainly did. So I think probably a thing that I should mention is uh, both at CERN and uh, on neutrino experiments around the world, uh, machine learning is used every day. It's used uh, most often uh, for tasks um, where you need to pull out a signal um, or maybe um, for regression. It'll be used at different stages of an experiment. Um, It'll be used uh, almost as just like to calibrate the readout of a detector, or it might be used more ambitiously at the very final stage of producing an actual measurement for a paper, the actual sort of significance of appearance of a particle or something like that. But machine learning is everywhere, uh, which is already exciting and comes with its own challenges. But because we've had this culture of using machine learning for a while and these great computational resources that came from uh, a need for really powerful simulation. Um, We started to pick up a lot of the more recent, uh, more exciting advances from uh, the world of machine learning, things related to deep neural networks and uh, more exciting variations on them from the last couple of years.
0: Okay, I have so many follow-up questions. (laughs) So here's my first one. So one thing that I remember from my time at CERN, and again, this was a few years ago, was that You kind of mentioned this. There was a trust of the cut and count analyses that hadn't fully developed yet for the what we called the multivariate analyses was usually what we would call them, which was like the machine learning ones. And because I think to some extent, uh, you know, part of that was sociological, that the machine learning was newer in the analysis stage. Although, like you said, it had been used for a long time in um, sort of the lower level computations and part of it might just be a little bit of i don't know my my hypothesis was always that because physics was a field that was understood fairly well from the ground up as as academic fields go there's like mathematical theories of the universe that physicists are pretty sure are true uh, that you know there's a little bit resistance to to black boxy algorithms there's a, a this feeling of intellectual purity, like you should be able to understand the, the, uh, the reaction all the way from the beginning to the end. And I'm wondering if that is still the case there, if that might've just been, you know, a property of a few meetings that I happen to be in, but has not been your experience overall. Like, if, you know, is there any pushback to some of these more sophisticated techniques from, folks who are, you know, a little more purists?
1: Uh, Absolutely. Um, I should probably tread carefully here in how I respond to this camp than the other. But uh, so, yes, there's um, there's a lot of pushback from different people. And often there are very different voices that get sort of put together as the anti-machine learning camp. And some of them, I think, are very reasonable. Um, Sort of starting with something simple like baselines, essentially, and building your way up. And then there are those who just uh, have sort of what I would almost characterize as a um, uh, <laughs> irrational is a strong word, so I'm not going <laughs> to lean into that. But, uh, you know, I, I think that uh, any any analysis, no matter how simple seeming, should be rigorously tested. And that's very true in particular when you want to do science, um, because at the end of the day, science isn't about the um, on paper strength of the result in the perfect, you know, Sandbox, it's about um, being able to really characterize well what that measurement you produce means, you know Really like meaningful uncertainties on that measurement that another scientist can uh, can work with and uh, I think that a lot of what you want to do with even the most complex black box machine learning algorithms is going to be very similar to what you do with the most simple um, human design cuts and uh, I'll go a little step further here and say that um As someone who's read a lot of physics code in my time, uh, a lot of those human design cuts can get um, quite convoluted by the end. And I would argue that they're acting a little bit like a human decision tree. And I would not necessarily uh, elevate too highly uh, the power of the physicist's a priori reasoning. Um, I think there's a reason why uh, Immanuel Kant's idea of the way science should be done uh, fell out of fashion a long time ago. Actually, one um, cool bit of history that your listeners might be interested in would be uh, uh, the period in time in which we had very rich visual data uh, coming out of even uh, uh, sort of early uh, CERN experiments uh, called bubble chambers. They might even have seen these beautiful pictures, actually, where uh, ionizing particles are being captured. um, The trails left by them are being captured um, on photographic film. Gorgeous curving lines coming from fundamental particles, um, very rich data, very analog data. uh, That was analyzed by a bunch of human beings, Um, did amazing jobs, most of them uh, brilliant women who, uh, unfortunately, because of the gender politics of the day, uh, were limited to using their amazing skills for this very invisible discipline of uh, scanning uh, data, Uh, but uh, sort of universally respected and held in awe by the particle physics community, uh, justifiably so. Amazing skill set. But you'll often find an interesting paradox in the way older particle physicists will treat black boxes Insofar as they'll be very uncomfortable with say a convolutional neural network um, but they'll be incredibly comfortable with the idea of just like one or two hand scanners being paid minimum wage to look through uh, hundreds of thousands of events and label them by hand and and uh, I think we can agree that uh that would just be a very uh stochastic black box machine learning algorithm on some level uh and uh
0: <laughs> yes yes i think we agree about that there
1: yeah was, so I, oh, sorry, uh, maybe ahead um ahead. maybe something i should mention now actually is that uh having just uh, attacked people who believe in uh, <laughs> a priori reasoning um and the purity of particle physics um, thought to cut straight through and sort of, to the truth of the universe. Um, A lot of that- Do some
0: backpedaling here now, Alex.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, um, a lot of that thinking, those tools, that ability to reason out the way the universe should work, uh, of course, turns out to be incredibly useful when actually deploying these tools. So um, uh, we end up training a lot of these algorithms on simulation, admittedly quite beautiful simulation. Uh, built on uh, a lot of what we've learned so far about how the universe works, but still ultimately simulation. And as the adage goes, the simulation is always wrong. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, the one great advantage we have in particle physics is we can often pick out um, sort of standard candles uh, interactions that we understand really well based on how we understand the standard model of particle physics. And once we've found those interactions, we can test how these machine learning algorithms we develop, um, behave on those standard candles and that gives us a sense of how much we can trust them outside of those Regimes we understand really well. It's obviously not perfect. These are just standard candles, right? They're reference points in very particular sort of kinematic regions and stuff like that, but uh, They're the sort of tool and test which can give you a lot of faith that you haven't uh, too fine-tuned on the quirks of your simulation instead of reality
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I'm, I'm remembering back. So this was this was something that I actually wanted to talk about, but you kind of have beaten me to it, uh, you know, talking a little bit about how you train these supervised algorithms in a regime where, you know, the, the particle collisions themselves don't come with labels attached. So there's kind of this inherent uncertainty. And so in, to, to some extent, you can get around that with simulated data that does have tags attached to it because you, you generated it and you know what the right answer is. But that a lot of times what we would do at CERN and there's probably a similar set of stories in neutrinos. Is you would do stuff like tag and probe methods, where you might have events where you know that one of the one of the particles in the event is a muon with very very high certainty, and there's some other particle that's back to back with it. Well, then you know with pretty high certainty that that's a muon as well. You can see if your algorithm actually picks it up and correctly identifies it as a muon. And so there's there's stuff like that where you know you're there's as you said, these, these standard candles, these processes that you understand really well and you use them to, um, you, you test your algorithms against them to see if your algorithms are able to pick them up the way that you expect them to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the Nova experiment, we actually make extensive use of, uh, sort of hybrid, um, data Monte Carlo events where we pick out very common events we understand very well and make, uh, replace the particles we understand and have identified well with uh, ones that we don't see in as great a number. Uh, It's probably a very obtuse way of describing that. Let me rewind. Uh, So on NOVA, we make use of um, uh, hybrid data Monte Carlo events where we find um, these events, like the ones you described, that we understand reasonably well, which are are quite common and use them to fake uh, rarer, more interesting events that we're really interested in understanding uh, the performance of our algorithm are. So a good example of this in particular would be uh, one thing I didn't mention before about neutrinos is they do this very strange thing with the transform over long distances. Um, that's going to sound very strange to your listener. Uh, it sounded very strange to the first particle physicist who realized this was happening. Um, they actually changed one of their fundamental uh, sort of, physics parameters as they travel through uh, space and time. So in order to study that, um, we built two detectors. um, One at the beginning of this neutrino beam before any changes have happened, and another detector at the end after all the changes have happened. Now, uh, due to some unfortunate rule of the universe, it's actually very hard to point a neutrino beam at anything. So the rate you see is much higher at the beginning than it is at the end, just because it's sort of fanned out by the time you get to that far detector. So the near detector sees thousands of events a day, whereas the fire detector sees one, if you're lucky. Uh, and so not only are the samples changing, but uh, the one that you're most interested in, this really rare, low-statistic sample, is going to have different characteristics to the near detector. But basically, the only thing that's changing between them is the uh, the so-called lepton flavor. Now, your listeners don't need to understand quite what that means, but essentially it means that uh, the interactions happening in the detector are going to differ by one observed particle. Um, you're going to see uh, electrons at the far detector, where you'd see muons at the near detector. And uh, happily, these muons are really easy to identify. Um, there was the I mentioned much earlier in our conversation, the being very long tracks. You can pull those out and then replace them with a simulated electromagnetic shower. So in that way, you can sort of fake um, your electron neutrino event. And comparing what happens to your efficiency for those hybrid events versus ones which are purely Monte Carlo, um, gives you a really good handle on any overtraining that you've um, had occur on simulation compared to, to real data. I should also note that this connects to a lot of really interesting work in the wider machine learning world um, when it comes to transfer learning, um, because that's kind of what particle physicists are always doing. They're transferring from one domain, which is this magical world of simulation, which doesn't work quite like the real one, to the real world. Um, And of course, the better we get at particle physics, the closer those two worlds will be, but it's always going to be a jump from one domain to another.
0: Well, so that was actually something I wanted to ask about was as you're working in kind of this overlap space between physics and machine learning in practice, did you find yourself spending more time thinking about the latest physics results and going to lots of physics meetings, or at some point did you start to blur into, you know, the machine learning community a little bit and you're paying more attention to what's hot on, you know, the machine learning pages of the archive yeah. than the, than the <laughs> physics results.
1: It's true that the reason I'm in machine learning research now is that I did find myself reading a lot of machine learning papers as they came out. Uh, I fell into podcasts like this one, uh, machine learning Twitter, way back in the day, uh, I guess like four or five years ago now, I did like an online Coursera machine learning course just out of curiosity, and it just sort of built um, over time. Uh, I will say that I was lucky enough to do a lot of physics, physics as well, I brave. Uh, Happy that Nova gave me the chance to be a convener of one of their neutrino oscillation analysis groups. So I did a lot of physics analysis in my sort of final year or two. But I I just realized in my heart the stuff that really got me excited was the the machine learning. That's not to say that there isn't a lot of cool stuff in particle physics. Um, It's just, you know, I think when you're a researcher, uh, for anyone really, uh, following your interests, is what's going to give you that extra energy and boost uh, to do really great
0: things. And so in terms of the people who are listening to this right now, and they're kind of excited about the stuff you're talking about, one question I get sometimes is a little bit like, how can I be involved type questions for people who aren't physicists, but who you know, are excited about this kind of stuff. So one thing I usually point them toward is Kaggle, which has had a couple pretty good competitions that have been sponsored by CERN where people are doing, um, machine learning challenges on certain data. It's, it's definitely something that's a little bit cleaned up and sanitized from the raw stuff that comes out of the detector, but is good nonetheless. Do you know if there's anything like that for, for the neutrino experiments? You know, do you have other types of, uh, advice that you like to give folks who are interested in hanging out at, at this intersection where you hang out? Do you have any particular, like That's a, pros or cons on the, the cargo <laughs> competitions?
1: Lots of really good questions there. So first of all, I should say that as far as I know right now, there are no good open neutrino datasets, but I do know that people have been working on producing them for some time. Um, it might even be that by now one has gone up um, for, so uh, a lot of the work that I did was on this um, Nova experiment, which is a beautiful running experiment but uh, it has a successor already being lined up, because that's how we do things in uh, particle physics, is building the next bigger detector or experiment. Uh, and so this experiment is called DUNE. It's d- designed to really deliver definitive answers to these neutrino uh, oscillation questions. Um, and so it's bigger. It uses um, a new cutting edge detector technology technology. Um, which looks an awful lot like those bubble chamber pictures i mentioned earlier very rich with uh, a lot of like um almost analog uh information Uh, lots of like very sort of where the images are fuzzy not because of the lack of granularity of the detector but because the actual physics is fuzzy at those kind of scales which is really cool um and it's uh it's moving along but um it's a very challenging uh detected technology to work with, it turns out just because there's so much data and it's the sort of thing where uh, going back to that a priori reasoning, a very smart old professor could sit down and work out an awful lot of what's going on, but then it's very hard to code a robust algorithm that can do that um, at scale uh It's very easy to code something that will like deal with a specific problem, but just human set rules. Tend to break down uh, at a certain point if you still want to keep that amazing human level performance. So, there's been a lot of really cool work going on there with using things like uh, convolutional neural networks again, uh, both two dimensional and three dimensional now. Um, people are talking about uh, using uh, maybe a graph representation because the data is actually very sparse, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, a lot of my Co-authors are continuing to push on that. Uh, There'll probably be some cool papers coming out in the next year or two. But uh, I'd say in particular, uh, one of my co-authors on the Nature Review that I um, I wrote, uh, Kazu, does a lot of stuff very specifically with uh, deep learning and uh, liquid argon detectors. And he really wants to get a bunch of ready-to-use problems out there for people to play with. So I think that's going to happen. Uh, but uh, it's not quite there yet as far as I'm aware. Uh, But you're right, there's a lot of really cool stuff from the Collider world. Uh, And another one of my co-authors, David uh, Russo, uh, had a series of competitions over the last year to do with tracking uh, at the LHC after the big upgrade and increase in luminosity. Um, As far as I'm aware, I think the winners were uh, people who weren't from those experiments. Um, So that's great. Uh, And I'll also say that uh, it's cleaned up data, and there are great um, resources that were provided by David and his um, colleagues to get people started quickly. I think mean, that really helps a lot, you know, just sort of baselines and little Python workbooks that let people get to the fun stuff quickly. Uh, and I'd say there's a lot of fun stuff. There's a lot of room to start looking into, as people have started to, I should say, and there are already papers out there, but uh, recurrent neural networks and graph neural networks to process um the kind of data we get in particle physics detectors, um, which uh, is particularly graph neural networks, it turns out are very good at clustering. And a lot of the big problem for this new high luminosity LHC is going to be clustering distinct particles, which are sort of overlapping with each other just because there's so much stuff going on in the detectors. Um So, yeah, I think those sort of Kaggle competitions you're very right to point to, and would definitely give your listeners. Um, something to play with that's pretty cleaned up, but actually could be the basis of something that could actually be used. Um, Cause these are very much tools which are necessary, but not quite there yet. So there's the real opportunity to contribute to something that will be uh, vital for this next phase of life, the LHC experiments, which is pretty cool. All
0: right. So one last question, and then I will let you go. Tell me a little bit about some of the stuff that where you think there are opportunities still for machine learning. What are the things that we're not doing yet, but that, you think we could be?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think this is actually really exciting stuff. So uh, a lot of the attention uh, settles on just getting a slightly better signal out of some measurement. Um, And obviously that's very important. Uh, But uh, it's also really exciting to think about things that we might be able to do now that we just couldn't before. So there are a bunch of these. uh, So don't take anything I mentioned now as the absolute list. There's actually a lot of really exciting work going on. But uh, one example that's very on-trend for the machine learning world these days uh, would be the use of generative adversarial networks, for example, to uh, emulate simulation. Uh, What do I mean by emulate simulation? I mean try and come up with a way to very quickly reproduce the output of the very expensive simulations we run in particle physics with a deep neural network, um, uh, which sounds uh, sort of crazy on the face of it, at least to the average particle physicist who's aware of just how much goes into that simulation. Uh, but uh, some early tests actually look really promising. It's really tough. Uh, as some of your listeners might know, Generative networks tend to not learn things you don't force them to learn, um, which means that uh, they can have some really kooky physics of the, uh, the things you've designed an adversary to test them on. Uh, but if we could get it to work, it would allow us to have a much higher fidelity fast simulation, which allows people to prototype. Analyses and even new detectors much faster than they have to right now, just because of the simulation costs. Um, I'd say also more generally um, with adversarial networks, they allow us to define more nuanced loss functions. Uh, Why is that exciting? It's exciting because often uh, for a science measurement, you're not interested in just getting that better signal. You're often interested in what is the best signal I can get without exposing myself to a certain type of systematic uncertainty. So like a classic one in the collider world would be I really want to do as well as I can at detecting this particle, but I don't want to expose myself to this whole complex um, interaction physics that no one really understands very well and we only have like these iterative um, computational solutions for. So what is the best I can do without being sensitive to assumptions about that model? Uh, and you might already begin to be able to see that you can Maybe program that into uh, an adversary, and there's been some great short papers on that. Go quickly running through some other stuff. Uh, maybe making your entire simulation differentiable so you can tune it to match your data. Outlier detection. So um, something we didn't actually get into at all is that at the collider experiments, uh, the vast majority of data gets thrown away. I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but uh, uh, order, just a few percent gets left behind after a series of... Cuts Now, hopefully those are the most interesting uh, few percent of data. But there's always this fear that some genuinely new physics might be lost along the way. So there's always a lot of excitement about trying to use the latest machine learning tools to build a genuinely unbiased outlier detector that won't just try and write every single event to disk anyway. Um, that's an incredibly challenging task. Um, but uh, maybe some of these latest tools might allow us to do that. And actually, one last thing, which is just... Um, A lot of what we were already doing with machine learning obviously uh, was very mature, but I think that as uh, the profile of machine learning has increased, uh, particularly because of advances from deep neural networks, uh, more and more physicists are learning about these tools. And as they learn about them, uh, they learn to be more critical of them in a very useful way and to learn tools from that community about how to probe their behavior. Um, simple things like uh, a t-SNE visualization of um, outputs of a a detector of of a neural network or something like that. Uh, And once you, now you have this beautiful combination of like the domain knowledge that I mentioned earlier that allowed us to calibrate these tools, but also the knowledge of machine learning that allows them to like also probe their behavior in different ways. And I think that all coming together is just going to make for much more powerful, but also much more uh, robust
0: science. So you you started with like one good example, and then you just had another one and another one and another one and another one. And I think that's really cool. I'm excited about all of that. And now I want to just go read a bunch of papers. (laughs) Um, So this has been really fun for me, kind of a trip down memory lane a little bit and hopefully pretty interesting for folks listening who, you know, don't often get to go inside the world of high physics. So thank you, Alex, so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's happy been to do this, fascinating. One thing I'll mention real quick, uh, the Kaggle competitions that have been run out of CERN in the past, I don't think any are running right now as we are recording. If I'm wrong, I will, uh, put some, something to that effect in the show notes. Um, but I think a lot of the old data sets and, um, competition entries are still available online so we will put links to those on lineardigressions.com if you want to check them out alex thank you again so so much and we really appreciate it linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like just tell them we said hi to find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to Lineardigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are Ben at Lineardigressions.com and Katie at Lineardigressions.com, in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at lynn Digressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.